Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro, which is actually a subsection called Ask the Maestro. I'm just here as a sort of interlocutor. I'm here for you, sweet listeners, to ask questions and put them mostly to the maestro, because let's be blunt, he's got all the answers. Can opera singers speak all the languages which they sing in? No. The answer is very simply no. They put in an awful lot of work to come to terms with pronunciation and meaning, and they really work very hard to get that right. And some singers who travel a lot to Germany will pick up German, and the same goes for Italian, really. But no, you do not have to speak a language fluently to be able to sing in it. This is Julian Godley, who we love dearly. We <laughs> A, know him, B, we love Julian, him. Julian, Julian. Listeners, we do not pay Julian to send in these questions. He just cannot be stopped. Julian says, does he groan when the singer has transposed the song into a key which is distant from the original? producing a very different mood or colour. And of course, it might be a maddeningly difficult key. And his favourite key, he says, unfortunately, is in five flats. Can you, can you play five, what key that is? First of all, tell me, is it E flat major? No. No. What is it? Julian, that's gorgeous. D what, flat major. D flat major. So there you are, Julian. First of all, we played you your favourite key. But secondly, do you find it enraging, Stevie, when people do that? <laughs> well, you do, I know you I, do. Julian, I hope you are not referring to an actual uh, occasion when I accompanied you and you put up a song in a completely different key from the one I knew. I hope you're not doing that <laughs> because, as an accompanist, yes, I absolutely do groan when someone puts a different key up because for a pianist to play in a completely different key is, as you hint, it jangles my mind because I've got some kind of perfect pitch. So my mind is jangled, first of all. I'm playing something I know in a key that isn't the original, and that bothers me. But secondly, when I hear music that I know well, or I hear a tune that isn't sung in the right key, I sometimes don't even recognize it, as my wife will tell you. I know. I sing something quite simple like Happy Birthday, and I don't know what that is. Because right Julian also adds in another, he, listeners, he peppers us, thank goodness, with these wonderful questions and comments. And he says, in what way does the maestro experience the colours and moods that the different keys produce? And of course they do, because composers pick particular keys, you know. Yes, they do. And forgive me for diving a little bit into the 18th century, when keys were specifically chosen to suit the instruments that were playing. Mm. So in Haydn's day, trumpets in D were quite standard. And, but if you read a symphony in F-sharp minor, yeah. which Haydn did, number 45, The Farewell, there are no trumpets in that because, of course, they couldn't play the notes. And then in Mozart's case, he uses specific keys, specific moods, but these were keys that were traditionally associated with certain moods. So E-flat major for the Countess Poggiamo, it says more about her character that it's in E-flat because E-flat major suits horns and clarinets very well. So the clarinets are prominent in that aria. Whereas an aria by Susanna de Vieni in F major, F major resembled something to do with simplicity. 
And G was a key that was used to represent rustic character, rustic life. So choruses in Mozart's operas do tend to be in C major, D major, or G major, because they've got a brightness and it suits very well oboes and flutes. But to get back to the modern day, composers still use specific keys for a specific reason. Of course they do. They don't just say, no, you can do this in any key. So, yes, keys have an importance, a historical one and a scientific one. But, of course, when Schubert songs are sung by different voices, soprano, tenor, or bass, then they must be able to be sung in the tessitura that suits the voice. So they can be done in transposition. So it's not an open and shut case. Well, what is an open and shut case is sometimes when you hear the very famous aria Nessun Dorma from, from Turandot, which is sung at football matches and everybody knows inside out and all the three tenors sing it. But when it's taken out of the opera and sung just as something, a showpiece for a tenor, quite often it's transposed down because it's very high, isn't it? Yes, it's got that top B. Oh, look, you can do it, maestro. No, well, I have to tell you that when we were students at Cambridge, the, the choir sometimes would go and do that ghastly thing in the great court after a pint or two in the, in the bar. We'd all come out and each of us would take a go at singing that last phrase. Um <laughs> At pitch. But there are also transpositions available in, in Bohème for a great duet at the end of Act One. Mm. That is sometimes done down a semitone. And we don't really do that often. But for some singers who make a thing of singing that aria a lot, they're either going to want to show off their top B, which is very high, or they might want to take it a little bit easier and only have a B-flat. But if they only have a B-flat, does that mean the whole opera has to come down? No, you see, this is a rather annoying thing. Sometimes when you have to do these transpositions, some music at some point, it's rather like a train changing tracks. Mm. You've got to suddenly lurch off Mm. onto the other railing. And sometimes that's a little bit of a jerk. And then, of course, when it's all over, you have to go back into the original key, and sometimes that doesn't really work as well as we'd like. And we've talked before, so we won't talk again now, about which particular pieces of music are chosen, which instruments as well as which key, and how maddening it is when there's something which is written for the flute is suddenly represented on the on a new recording by the cello or something, a very different yes, thing. I, know. It's I don't just, know why they do it. Cherry-picking tunes and putting them onto all sorts of things. Well, I we, mean, won't, you, we won't talk about that because it makes us both... You see, talk. a flugelhorn would, would it sound rather nice playing Porgia more, but, but to be perfectly honest, that would just be a flugelhorn playing a lovely Mozart tune, whereas when the countess sings it, you know, it's another world. Janie, I love you because you've always been listening to Joanna and the Maestro. You suddenly think, Maestro's getting plenty of stuff. Joanna, I just want to ask you, you do travel shows, she says. She loves the podcast. And she, you know, when she walks to the gym in the morning, she listens to us. So that's good. But it's the, my travel things that completely taken over. She just says, can you share what shoes you wear for travel? Bizarre question, I know, but stylish shoes are my bête noire. Mine too. And I walk a great deal. Do you want me to answer that? Yes. For you? No, but I just, Janie, Janie, this is what I want you to say. I want you to wear shoes that are comfortable. Always take socks with you. If you're doing proper mountain walking and you've got some good proper climbing boots, I was taught long ago when I was walking you know, in the Karakorums that you wear two pairs of socks. That helps. 
sometimes if you put talcum powder between the two pairs of socks, you won't get blisters. Make sure your shoes don't give you blisters. There is nothing worse than shoes that hurt at anything. And I remember my mother said to me years ago, in London, if your shoes hurt, take them off. Walk on the pavements in bare feet. And I've done that several times. When I was very young, I used to come back from parties where I'd wore nice, stylish, tall-heeled shoes. I'd take them off and run along the pavements back to Earl's Court in the night time. Obviously looking a bit strange. But Janie, get comfortable, <laughs> comfortable shoes. Wear them in. Do not ever pack high heels when you go away on holiday, unless you know you're going to meet the president. Then check what height the president is, because you don't want to tower over him. <laughs> okay, thanks, Janie. Now, look, this is the last piece we're going to have in our darling little question session. Okay, our last question, it comes from Glenn Mansfield. Glenn sends us love, 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 and Glenn, we send it back in armfuls. He says he loves hearing about our favorite pieces of classical music, but which piece gives you a gut-trembling, heart-racing, totally joyous feeling that you just want to run and dance around the room, maybe smiling from ear to ear, embracing life and loving love. Then myself, my sister Debbie, and my niece Sophie, who calls me Crazy Uncle Glenn. She's not the only one, Uncle Glenn, who calls you that. <laughs> She'll listen to it, they'll listen to it, and they'll prance along too. He also says, thank you for getting me started on my classical music journey. My next step is to attend some live performances. Glenn, you are completely wonderful. We love you dearly. I want to suggest that the piece that makes me skip and jump and dance is the overture to Rossini's Thieving Magpie. I just think it's completely ravishing. Rossini always picks up my spirits, and he's, he also never quite knows when to end a piece. So he goes on and on, goes back, just when you think it's rumpety-tump, but rumpety-tump, you go, baby, baby. And you go, oh, gosh, he hasn't quite finished yet. He does things with flourish and style. So Rossini's thieving magpie for me. And what for you, Stevie? And why? <laughs> Bear with me, Glenn, because I'm going to suggest the opening movement to Elgar's second symphony. Now, go, go with it. Go with it. There's a little bit of a, a hint at the top of the first page when in italics, I think, might not be, is a quote from Percy Bysshe Shelley, the poet. He says, come, O come, O spirit of delight. And that first movement is just so impulsive and joyful. And being a symphony, though, it's got moments when it calms down and goes through, you know, the usual trail of narrative. But it is truly, truly, truly an uplifting, extraordinary piece of English high romantic music in symphonic form. Amazing. But look, I also have to go back to my wife's favorite composer. And I would suggest the scherzo from Beethoven's Fourth Symphony. There we are. Uncle Glenn, if you're feeling a bit exhausted and your family actually frankly, lock the doors because they're anxious the police might come to see you cavorting. You might just go back to the all-time favourite because it never quite ends. And that's the third movement of Beethoven's Ninth because it just takes you wandering and wandering. And Glenn, if you're, you know, if you're exhausted after the, you know, the capering and the grinning from ear to ear and the heart thumping, you just might want to put this on and wander around the kitchen Make them a cup of tea. Thank them for coming. They'll be begging to leave by now, Glenn. Uncle Glenn, <laughs> I'll come and see you. 